So the 10 verses that we read from Matthew's Gospel uh, about Jesus feeding the 4,000 are incredibly dense. That is to say, there's an awful lot that we can discover from them. Uh, So this morning, I'm going to summarize some of the key themes under three headings. So the three things that we're going to focus on, and they all begin with M, are multitudes, miracles, and mercy. Multitudes, miracles, and mercy. Firstly, multitudes. Verse 30 tells us that great crowds came to Jesus. Jesus always seemed to draw a crowd, and that's because he said and did the most amazing things. He said things that people had never said before. So things like love your enemies and pray for them. No one had ever said that. He did things like feeding a crowd with just a few uh, loaves and small fish. He did things that nobody else could do. And the thing is, Jesus was operating in what was predominantly an agricultural society. The majority of the population would have worked on the land. Now, if you've ever worked on the land, you will know that that work is incessant. Uh, It's endless. It never stops. There's always something to do. And a family's survival would have been dependent on that work being done. The fact that people were prepared to tear themselves away from that Uh, In this case, for three days, in verse 32, Jesus says, they have already been with me for three days. Well, that shows that something of great significance was happening. Jesus was causing a huge stir wherever he went. And whenever we read of Jesus being with a crowd, there are three things that he does for people. And he always does at least one of these things, if not all three. Uh, Jesus treated sickness. He instructed ignorance, that is, he taught people. And he fed hungry bodies. And in this case, it was the first of the three three things that drew the crowd. Jesus' ability to miraculously heal people. Now, if you're sick, it's natural and reasonable to want healing. But if we go to Jesus for healing, we must also be prepared to listen to what he has to say. So there was this uh, large crowd of people, which included many who were uh, crippled, lame, blind, mute, uh, etc. And in the ancient world, before the advent of medical science, uh, a much higher percentage of the population would have suffered from these sort of ailments. And if you ever go uh, to the developing world, you'll, uh, you'll find that there's much more in the way of deformities and physical affliction uh, ailments of all kinds. And uh, this crowd uh, was a crowd of 4,000 men, and they didn't count the women and the children. So actually, in total, this crowd could have easily been 10 or 15,000, maybe even more. Sometimes uh, people confuse uh, this crowd with the 5,000 that Jesus fed in Matthew 14. But actually, it's quite clear that this isn't the same crowd. In Matthew 16, when the disciples are being a bit slow on the uptake, and again it's to do with bread, Jesus warns them, he says, Be, uh, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples don't really understand what he means, and they're talking about it among themselves, and they're saying, is it because we forgot to bring the bread? And Jesus said, do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many basketfuls you gathered. So these are two separate events, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. What's more, the feeding of the 5,000, that was a Jewish crowd, and the feeding of the 4,000 was a non-Jewish or Gentile crowd. How do we know the 4,000 were Gentiles? Well, Matthew tells us that when Jesus healed their ailments, 
They praised the God of Israel. They didn't just praise God, they praised Israel's God. What's more, Mark's gospel tells us that this miracle took place in Decapolis, which was a cluster of 10 Greek cities on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. This was an area predominantly inhabited by non-Jews, by Gentiles. Uh, So the 5,000 were Jewish and the 4,000 were almost certainly Gentiles. That's important. We'll come back to that later. But let us now turn to the subject of miracles. This passage is packed with miracles. Jesus heals all the people that come to him, and then he feeds this huge crowd in a wholly miraculous way. The feeding miracles are quite remarkable, both of them, the 5,000 and the 4,000. Firstly, because of the sheer number of people involved. Everyone ate the food. They were not spectators of this miracle, but participants. Uh, They were all involved. They were all right at the center of it, so to speak. And secondly, because this was a creation miracle. When Jesus heals the blind, that's restorative, restoring their sight. When Jesus turned water into wine, That's transformative. He's transforming one thing into another. When Jesus produces a huge amount of food out of virtually nothing, well, that's an act of creation. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it like this, but the grain that made that bread had never grown in the ground. The fish had never swum in the sea. Uh, They were created specifically for this meal. Uh, But, you know, we live in a miracle-averse culture. Uh, Many try to explain the great feeding miracles away. Uh, When it comes to the feeding of the 5,000, people say, well, you know, there was this little boy, and he was willing to share his lunch, and that encouraged everyone else to share. Uh, Isn't it wonderful that Jesus encourages us to share? But that just doesn't fit. In both cases, the whole point is that all they have is a limited number of loaves and fish. That's all they can find. There's nothing else available. Besides, when Jesus fed people, they all went away satisfied. Have you ever shared your lunch? You know, you're about to tuck into your sandwiches and you realize that someone there hasn't got any lunch. And you say, would you like to share mine? And secretly you're hoping they'll say, no thanks, it's okay, I've already eaten. But they never do say that. Uh, They always say, are you sure? Uh, But at that point, you can't very well say, uh, no, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to share my lunch. You can go hungry. So uh, you share your lunch. You know it's the right thing to do. And uh, the Lord loves a cheerful giver and all that. Is this is that how it works in Australia? Or am I just explaining uh, strange British etiquette? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, when you share your lunch, you're halving it. You're halving it. So neither of you gets quite as much as you would like. But when Jesus fed people, they were all satisfied. They all had enough to eat. This doesn't sound like an exercise in sharing. It sounds to me like a miracle. And you know, in the Gospels, nobody ever tries to claim that Jesus' miracles are fake. There's no attempt on the part of unbelievers to say that the miracles didn't happen. And you might say, well, uh, the Gospels are written by Christians. Of course, they're not going to deny Jesus' miracles. Uh, But when people had doubts, the gospel writers tell us so. Uh, On one occasion when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, Matthew tells us this. He said, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. The gospel writers are not afraid to include details that don't necessarily strengthen their case. But it seems that nobody ever doubted Jesus' miracles. 
And that is because they were so widespread and so dramatic that they left absolutely no room for doubt. People didn't always accept Jesus, but they had to accept the fact of his miracles. And it's interesting, the disciples never doubt Jesus' miracles once they've happened, or in the case of doubting Thomas, once they've seen the evidence. But often they don't seem to anticipate Jesus' miracles. No matter how, many time, how, how many, uh, much time they spend with Jesus, they don't seem to see these miracles coming. When Jesus tells his disciples that he doesn't want to send the crowd away hungry, this is how they respond. They say, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Well, these are the same disciples who were with Jesus when he fed a crowd of 5,000 people. We read this and we think, well, isn't it obvious what Jesus will do? How can they be so boneheaded? It's easy for us to say that, but we don't always apply the same rationale to our own lives. Let's say we're facing financial difficulty. Uh, Often we don't say, well, God has always provided for us in the past. Uh, He's always looked after us. We know that he'll provide for us in the future. It will be okay. We don't say that, do we? We just start, start, start getting worried and anxious and fretful all over again. You'd think we'd learn from our experience, from that relationship we have with God through Jesus. Well, I think we do learn eventually, but we can be pretty slow to catch on. And the disciples were slow to catch on. Uh, They'd seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, and here they were wondering how they're going to feed 4,000. It doesn't seem like they were expecting Jesus to perform another miracle. In Australia today, uh, people do not expect Jesus to perform miracles. Uh, People do not give much credence to miracles. Even as Christians, sometimes we struggle to believe that miracles can and do happen, and that's because we are immersed in a miracle-denying culture. Throughout the Gospels, there is a direct correlation between faith and miracles. We need look no further than Matthew's Gospel, where we are today. In Matthew 9, a woman who had been suffering from bleeding uh, for seven years managed to touch Jesus' cloak as he passed by in the hope that she'd be healed. And Jesus turned to her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. In Matthew 13, uh, we read that Jesus didn't do many miracles in his hometown because the people there lacked faith. In Matthew 17, when Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy, the disciples want to know why why they couldn't do it. They tried. And Jesus tells them, because you have so little faith. And I think this is a problem of the Western world. We lack faith. We don't have the faith for miracles. We barely have enough faith to believe that God will answer our prayers, uh, which is why many Christians have such a mediocre prayer life. But you know, when we meet God face to face and we comprehend for the first time the power of prayer, we will all wish that we'd prayed an awful lot more. I'm sure of that. Uh, But let me clarify something. If someone prays for you to, feel, uh, to receive healing and you're not healed, it doesn't necessarily mean that you lack faith. Jesus never chastises anyone who is suffering for not having enough faith. And we all know people who have bags of faith and they've been prayed for on numerous occasions and they still live with uh, a physical condition, ailment, illness. But what we do need to do, what we absolutely need to do, is create an atmosphere and culture 
of faith. I think that any Christ-centered church that builds a culture of faith is likely to see more in the way of miracles. Uh, But to build that kind of culture, to build our faith, we need to exercise our faith. Isabel is desperate to learn to whistle. And every now and again, she'll say to me, look, Daddy, I can whistle. <laughs> and I don't want to discourage her. I say, well, that's a, that's a good try. You're not quite whistling yet. But if you, if you persevere, if you keep going with it, eventually you'll get it. You'll be able to whistle. Uh, of course, she could say, it's impossible. I give up. I'm never going to whistle. In which case, she may never whistle. But if she perseveres, if she keeps going, eventually she'll be able to whistle. And exercising our faith can be a bit like that. If we say a handful of prayers, and when our prayers aren't instantly answered in the exact way that we might want, if we, if we then say, well, this is pointless, prayer doesn't work, I can't be bothered, well, then we will never know the power of prayer. But if we persevere with prayer, if we exercise our faith persistently and consistently, then we will see more and more things beginning to happen. And that is my hope for the church, that we will continue to build on this culture of faith. We need to dare to believe that Jesus works in miraculous ways today. So multitudes, miracles, and finally, mercy. So as we've heard, when the crowds flocked around Jesus, Jesus met their needs in three ways. He healed their sickness, he instructed their ignorance, and he fed their bodies. Why? Why did Jesus do all this? Well, the answer can be found in verse 32. It says this. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. So many times in the Gospels, we see that Jesus is moved by love, compassion and mercy. Jesus's heart goes out to these people because of their suffering in the physical world. And because of their desperate spiritual condition. And the feeding of the 5,000, or 4,000 rather, is a beautiful picture of the far-reaching implications of God's mercy. So we saw that the crowd of 5,000 were Jews and the crowd of 4,000 were Gentiles. And Jesus clearly showed compassion and mercy to both crowds in the same way. He fed them in the same way. Jesus fed the Jews and he fed the Gentiles. And this is a central theme in the Gospels, that Jesus came for the sake of all humankind, not for a specific nation or group, uh, not for a certain type of person, you know, the religious kind of person. Jesus came for everyone. And Jesus gives life to the world through his disciples. That's you and me, by the way. Verse 35 and 36 say this. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they, in turn, to the people. Jesus feeds us so that we can feed others. And Jesus always offered a holistic solution to people's needs. He relieved people's physical suffering and he addressed their spiritual condition. And our spiritual condition is this. Uh, We're dead in our sins, every one of us, until we receive forgiveness and new life through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we, the church, 
offer a holistic solution to the world's needs? How do we bring Jesus's love, uh, compassion and mercy to the world? Three things. Firstly, we must be motivated by love and compassion, just as Jesus was and is. Uh, John Wesley, who was one of the founders of the Methodist Church, he said this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Well, the only uh, right motivation for living that way is love and compassion. In fact, without love and compassion, we will have absolutely no motivation to lead that kind of a life. Uh, And there can be no ulterior motive. Jesus healed all sorts of people. Some of them became his followers, others didn't. But he didn't just heal the ones who had become his followers. Jesus showed compassion to everyone, and so must we. Secondly, our ministry must be holistic. Oftentimes, churches gravitate towards one of two extremes. And I know this is a caricature, but um, some churches will embark on a lot of uh, social action projects. So uh, homeless shelters and food bank advocacy, all that kind of thing. But they don't get around to telling people the good news of Jesus. Uh, They never talk about sin or forgiveness or eternal life. At the other end of the spectrum... There are churches that focus exclusively on evangelism. They just want to make sure that everyone gets saved. But they do very little to address people's physical...